So this morning, we're going to continue our studies in the book of Acts. It'll be chapter 24. 24. There's only 27 verses in this one. Enjoy. There's a lot there, and a lot of it ties in with all the songs we sang here this morning, too. Ties in here. So it's great. I titled this little part here, The Problem of Procrastination. Okay. And it ties in with our message, too, this morning with Felix, right? A farm boy accidentally overturned his wagon load of corn in the road. The farmer who lived nearby came to investigate. Hey, Willis, he called out. Forget your troubles for a spell and come on in and have dinner with us. Then I'll help you to get the wagon up. Well, that's mighty nice of you, Willis answered. But I don't think Pa would like me to. Ah, come on, son, the farmer insisted. Well, okay, the boy finally agreed, but Pa won't like it. And after a hearty meal, Willis thanked his host. I feel a lot better now, but I just know Pa is going to be upset with me. Don't be foolish, exclaimed his neighbor. And by the way, where is he? He's under the wagon. <laughs> <laughs> Procrastination. <laughs> Okay, seriously, previously we have seen that Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem as a riot was about to break out in the temple courts. And he had made two unsuccessful attempts to pacify, to placate the Jews and to testify to them of Jesus Christ. And they refused to listen. And now after a plot against his life, he has been escorted under heavy guard to the province capital, Caesarea, on the coast. And there he will face the governor. And Acts 23, verse 33 says, And when they came to Caesarea, and he had delivered a letter from the commander, Lysis, Lysis, no, Lysis, Lysis, L-I-S, Lysis. That's what it is. I have trouble sometimes. And when I know I'm going to have trouble, I do have trouble. <laughs> Lysis, that's how you pronounce it, L. Okay, he received the letter from the governor, or to the governor, and they also presented Paul to him. That's right, we'll get that out of the way. <laughs> now, the delivery of Paul to Caesarea marked the beginning of a two-year imprisonment in that city. And during this period, he stated his case and also the case for the Christian gospel to two provincial governors and a king, fulfilling one aspect of the Lord's prediction about his ministry. Back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, this is another Ananias, Go, for he is a, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the sons of Israel. And the governor referred to in Acts 23, verse 33, is Felix, who was a successor to Pontius Pilate. Now we know something about him from secular history. His full name was Marcus Antonius Felix. 
And he had been governor of the province of Judea for five years at the time this chapter records and had previously lived for two years in the city of Samaria. <clears throat> so we knew something about the Jews and about their nation. He was born a slave, but his brother Pallas, P-A-L-L-A-S, not Pallas, okay, happened somehow to become a favorite of the emperor in Rome. And through the influence of Pallas, Felix had been freed from slavery. And somewhat later, had been appointed governor of this province. And he was the first slave in history to become the governor of a Roman province. And he had been married by this time to three different princesses. And the first one we know nothing about, except that she was a princess. And the second wife was the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. And the third wife appears with him in this account this morning her name was Drusilla, and she was a very beautiful Jewess, the daughter of Herod Agrippa, the king who had put the apostle James to death. And she had been married when young to Asesus, king of Emesa, E-M-E-S-A, a petty Syrian king. But Felix saw her shortly after her wedding desired her, seduced her, and now she was living with him as his wife. And Tetichus, who lived in the first century, was a senator and a historian of the Roman Empire. Says Felix, Felix was completely unscrupulous. And he was known to hire thugs to eliminate even friends who happened to get in the way of his political ambitions. Now it is before such a judge that the Apostle Paul must appear. In the first nine verses in chapter 24 are Luke's account of the accusations made against Paul by the Jews as represented by Tertullus, a lawyer. Verses 10 to 21 are Luke's account of Paul's defense. Now we read beginning in verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down to Caesarea with the elders of a certain orator named Tertullus, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And I'm reading from the New King James, by the way, sorry. And I have my little things in there too. Now, given the great dissension, Acts 23, verse 10, that arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over Paul, most of the elders who accompanied Ananias, stood behind the accusation against Paul. Are likely, and they are likely to have been from the Sadducees, faction of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel. And with them, a man whose name indicates that he was perhaps a Gentile by birth, Tertullus, an orator, or really a lawyer, attorney. And he is one of those very wordy kinds of lawyers who can paint a picture to sue themselves and call good evil and evil good and make white black and black white like the lawyers we have today yes verse 2 and when paul was called upon to appear before the court tertullus began his accusation that is his prosecution saying to the governor 
seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this province by your foresight. And we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, or most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us of the problem we face. Now, if you read between the lines in these verses, you can see what is happening here. The lawyer begins by engaging in a bit of nauseating flattery. And he starts out this way. Oh, most excellent Felix, we know that a great peace and prosperity are happening in our nation because of you. Both he and Felix know that these statements were hypocritical and dishonest. And the governor evidently indicates his impatience, perhaps with a, a frown or gesture. And so the lawyer changes his tactics. He says, to detain you no further, that is, to be no more tedious to you, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. And after the flattery, he begins to bring forth the charges against Paul. And he says in verses 5 to 9, We have found this man a plague that is a real pest and an instigator of dissension, of strife, among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane, that is to desecrate the temple, and we arrested him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence forcibly took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By questioning him yourself, you may ascertain all these things with which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now the charges brought against Paul were first that he was at least in the eyes of the Jewish leadership a real pest. And that suggests that Paul is like a plague, a disease that was spreading into an epidemic. And the idea is that he is a revolutionary pest, a troublemaker, stirring up difficulties and riots all through the empire. And this lawyer knew that would have an effect upon this Roman judge because the Romans had a broad empire to administer. And the one thing they dared not to tolerate was civil unrest. Any uprising would be a spark that would light a fire which would be very difficult to put out. And they knew it. And the Romans dealt with a heavy hand with any troublemakers. And second, Paul was labeled as a religious radical. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, they are saying Paul is a representative of a group of people who are illegally practicing religion in the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans recognized certain religions as permitted, that is, as legal, but others were illegal. They cannot be practiced with the support of the Roman Empire. At this time, Christianity was still under the sanction of the Roman Empire because it was thought to be a sect of Judaism. 
And the Jews used the name Nazarenes for the followers of Jesus. And another reason for that so they didn't have to use the name Jesus. And they had previously made a statement, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And this was intended to slur against Paul. Their true complaint was that he was a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom they hated. Tertullus then moved to the theological aspect of his charges. He said in verse 6 that Paul even tried to defile the temple and that to prevent him from doing so, we seized him, we arrested him. Now the original charge had been softened. Now the Sanhedrin no longer was no longer claiming that Paul violated the temple, but that he tried, that he tried to do so. And also the earlier reference to the Gentiles being in a forbidden part of the temple disappeared. Tertullus had to get around the fact that it couldn't be proven that Paul had defiled the temple. And he cleverly claimed the temple police had grabbed Paul before he could carry out his plan. And thus, if challenged on the fact that there were no witnesses to su this supposed defilement, Tertullus could say that it was because it never took place. Now we, the readers, know the facts and that Tertullus was putting his own spin on the situation. Paul had not attempted to defile the temple, nor had he done so accidentally. And neither was there any an orderly arrest of Paul by the temple police, neither, as Tertullus tried to imply. A frantic mob had grabbed Paul and was trying to kill him, all on the basis of an unsubstantiated rumor. And that's Acts 21, verses 27 to 31. Tertullus ended his testimony by encouraging Felix to examine Paul so that he will be able to learn the truth about the, all these charges we are bringing against him. Now this at first seems odd as Paul was certainly not going to admit to something he had not done. But in ancient trials, examine often meant some form of beating or torture. And Tertullus perhaps hoped that Paul would incriminate himself in some way through the beating. And finally, having made these charges against Paul, all the Jews, that is, the Jewish party who had come with him, declared that Tertullus has presented the case fairly. All of the ones that came with him. Now the ninth commandment of the law says, you know it? You shall not bear false witness. That's Exodus 20, verse 16. That did not deter these religious zealots because the end they sought justified any means they could use. Now in verses 10 to 21, Paul defends himself. I'll begin in verse 10. Then Paul... <coughs> After the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Paul's introduction was short and truthful. He begins with the only nice statement an honest man could make about Felix. 
I know you've been a judge over this nation for many years. And Felix had been in this province for six or seven years and in Galilee for a longer period of time. Now this was fact, not flattery. Paul was appealing to Felix's experience as governor of the province. And he had seen a number of violent acts that involved Jews. And Felix knew these Jews and the issues which were really at stake. And thus Paul could gladly state his case before this official. Against the charge of being a real pest, a revolutionary, a troublemaker, stirring up difficulties and riots all through the empire. Paul says in verses 11 to 13, because you may ascertain easily that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And while there, they neither found me in the temple arguing with anyone nor inciting to the crowd to riot, either in the synagogue or in the city nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse me. Paul explained that he only recently arrived in Jerusalem, having come there about 12 days ago after many years' absence. And he spent perhaps a week of this time as a prisoner, and he would have had little time to organize a riot. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, not to cause trouble. And Paul flatly denied he had stirred up trouble. And Paul was saying his accusers were going on hearsay or even manufactured evidence. And these are no witnesses here to any and there are no witnesses here to any charge being made. And suddenly Paul said he was about to confess to something, but it was not a chargeable offense. Verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, a title for the followers of Jesus, which my detractors call a sect, so I worship the God of our fathers, the God of our ancestors. And the phrase God of our fathers was familiar to his accusers. And they would have known that Paul claimed to worship the same God they did. And Paul rightly claimed that his being a Christian did not mean he was violating the Holy Scriptures. And continuing in verse 14, Paul said, I believe all things which are written in the writings of the law and the prophets. And the phrase law and the prophets was a well-known description, description of the Jewish Scriptures. And Paul was arguing that he and the followers of the way were within the spectrum of Judaism. They worshiped the same God as the Jews and accepted the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul continues saying in verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul says that he has hope in God. What hope? The hope of the resurrection. Now the Jews held this same hope. Apart from the Sadducees, a small minority, the Jews believed in a future life and judgment. And hence, 
Even in this matter, Paul was not preaching a new, unknown, illegal doctrine, for Judaism was acknowledged by Roman law. The historian Josephus says the Sadducees were able to persuade none but the rich, and the Pharisees had the multitude on their side. And we mustn't lose sight of how differently from the Christians the Pharisees framed their beliefs in the resurrection. For the Pharisees, the resurrection of the just was a future event with justification depended on an individual's personal commitment to keep the law. And for Paul, the pledge of a future resurrection had already occurred in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An individual's personal zeal to keep God's ways was not relevant to the issue. All Christians, even after conversion, were subject to sin and fell short of the glory of God. And therefore, Christians had a different approach to salvation. They had to believe in Jesus as Savior, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And then, by Jesus living in them through the Spirit, they were accepted by God as righteous or holy. Christians live generally new lives according to God's will and ask for forgiveness when they sin. Paul's belief in a resurrection was not a theory, but a life. And he says in verse 16, in view of this, this here refers to the way. He says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God or men. Being a member of the way results in men and women living conscience-controlled lives. Now the third charge was that of desecrating the temple. And to this Paul replies in verses 17 to 21. Now after many years I came to Jerusalem to bring gifts and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple without any crowd nor with an uproar. And they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves, that is the members of the Sanhedrin, say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I was stood before their council meeting. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. <coughs> now Paul's argument was very simple. He said, I was bringing gifts of money and offerings to my people. And these were the sums of money gathered at the Gentile churches for the poor in Jerusalem. And these were not the actions of a revolutionary, a troublemaker, or an anti-Jew. Paul had gone to Jerusalem on a humanitarian, humanitarian mission. He had gone to the temple and had been purified with the four men who had shaved their heads, remember? In the Nazarite vow, stating that Paul walked orderly and kept the law. And that's in 21, verse 24. 
There were no large numbers with Paul. He was not causing trouble either. And Paul says here, Why did these men not come and testify against me to you if they had a complaint? And so he refers back to the time when he stood before Ananias and he says, See if any of you can point to anything that I did that was wrong when I stood before the council, except for this one thing. And that is that in the midst of the council, I cried out concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged by you today. So in effect, Paul concludes with the real issue is the resurrection. That is why he is on trial. You want me to continue? Yeah. That's his defense there. Is that? Okay. <coughs> Felix was not so easily misled, however, for we read in verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more knowledge of the way than was being presented by Paul's accusers, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, came down to Caesarea, I will make a decision on your case. Court is adjourned. Now, for political reasons, Felix would not decide against the Jews present in court. In verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have some freedom, and he told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or, to vi or visit him. Even this early in the story, we see that Felix habitually postponed decision even when he knew what he needed to do. He made the decision not to make a decision, even though his mind was informed with the facts. As verse 22 says, have a more accurate knowledge of the way, capital W. Felix had a passing knowledge of the facts of the gospel and he could hardly find Paul guilty of any offense against Roman law. And since Paul was a Roman citizen, he had to at least make a pretense of protecting his rights. He should have released him. But by postponing a verdict, he hoped to pacify the Jews and perhaps obtain a bribe from Paul. But perhaps to soothe his conscience somewhat, he commanded that Paul be given a considerable amount of freedom and that Paul's friends will be allowed to minister to him. <coughs> and by the way, the commander never did come. He never did call him to come. Now, according to verses 24 and 25, some days after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as Paul discussed the matters of doing right and maintaining self-control and the judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Doing right was far from the lifestyle of Felix. If self-control included things like beautiful women 
and money, Felix was in deep trouble because he had a special attraction for both. Paul emphasized the judgment to come and that Felix and Drusilla would not escape divine accountability for their lives. But Felix made no decision, though his heart was stirred. And the outcome was that Felix was terrified and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Surprisingly, he did call Paul back, but his motive was not noble. Verse 26, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him, and therefore he sent for him more often and had discussions for, with him. Money was high on the agenda of Felix, and he may have hoped that Paul had money from the Gentile churches, or that perhaps Paul's friends would pay a ransom for him. He had frequent discussions with Paul, hoping that a bribe would be forthcoming. <coughs> Felix wanted to talk about a payoff. <coughs> Paul wanted to talk about doing right. get emotional sometimes. I don't know any words that are sadder or more pathetic than these. Felix said, that is enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now, Felix did not say that he never wanted to hear the message of the gospel again. He just made the potentially fatal error of procrastination. Felix displayed a foolish attitude in his failure to act on what he had heard. He displayed a foolish attitude toward God's word. Felix felt that he could take it or leave it with the demands of scripture. He also displayed a foolish attitude of the conviction that he had felt toward his own sin. And yet you will remember that Acts 17 verse 30 said that truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. An important principle comes into play when people pass on the invitation of the gospel. Although they may hear the gospel again, it will not have the same effect. Conviction passed over, leaves a scar. And the next time it is heard, they are not so sensitive to the things of God. And although we are told in verse 26 that Felix 
frequently sent for Paul and talked with him often. There is no evidence that he ever trembled again. And that is the danger that people face when they are confronted with the reality of the claims of Christ and choose to do nothing. Their hearts are hardened, and it's hard to reach them. And verse 27 gives us the conclusion of the story. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul in chains. Okay, to be continued. Yes. I like that little saying. This is like serious. Yes. Yes. You should have been here earlier. <laughs> That's another little thing that we were talking about here this morning, too, about waiting. Waiting. We want to do things. Well, this is my part of my prayer, right? I guess. We'll just get into it. Dear Lord, we thank you for the lesson that we've learned here this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the messages that he's written in his epistles that help us through life. And one of them, Lord, is the waiting. We wait for this and we wonder how long is it going to take for us to reach this destination or get rid of this migraine or whatever the disease or whatever the illness is. And we keep reaching out and we keep striving for it and keep going and never seem to get there. And sometimes we forget, Lord, that you are in control. You know what we need and there's always a reason for what we go through. We just have to look to you. And so often in our lives, we tend to harden our hearts towards you in, the, in these ways that we don't rely on you or depend on you like we should. And so the time does seem long. But we need to know and to remember to be focused on you, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you are in control and all things are possible through you. And help us, Lord, as we leave this place, as we go out the lessons that we learned here today to reach out to people that don't know you and reach out in prayer for them. And there are a lot of people. We have friends, we have relatives, we have family that don't know you, Lord. And they have heard the message. And each time they've heard it and haven't done anything, they grow harder and harder. And it's harder to reach them. But prayer, prayer is the answer. And it may take a lifetime. It may take years. It's hard to know. But never give up. We will never give up. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And as a church, we're a loving church. We're a praying church. We're a caring church. And I thank you for each one here this morning, Lord, that we're like family. And we are family because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day when he comes, we're going to go home with him in heaven. Man, can't even imagine what it's like. And the songs that we sang this morning, Lord, were just wonderful. It all led up to this message here this morning. 
And help us, Lord, as we do leave, to not to pro procrastinate. That's an awful word. It's an awful word. To put off today what you can do tomorrow. Because tomorrow may never come. And help us, Lord, in our daily lives and help us to show other people, even if we can't talk to them, that they know that we're different. And we are different, Lord, because we're created in your image. And so are they. They just don't know you. And help us to have a burden in our hearts for the lost, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.